Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. Let me invite you to turn in your Bible to Malachi. If you're using one of the blue Bibles, it should be somewhere around page 467 or 68. If you're visiting with us for the first time or you're just trying to catch up with where we are, uh, we've been in a series called Little Books, Big Messages. And we've been doing that for about four months now, and we've covered, what, Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Haggai, and now we're in Malachi. So Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, and we'll go through the end of chapter 3. Good bit of reading here. Let's do this together. So, it's written here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 2. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming. And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? 
Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. And then all nations will call you blessed. For you will be at a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping His charge? Or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before Him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. All right, we need to pray, so let's do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. What truth, what light, what life. It is living and it is active. And our whole prayer and our hope right now is that you, by your spirit, in your mercy, would make the book to live and to act in our hearts. We ask this for the glory of Christ. Make us a people who greatly esteem your name. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. So at 16 years of age, 16, (laughs) earnest as he was, my grandfather snuck into the U.S. military He was not supposed to do that, but he did. And he made a life of it, and he became a fairly decorated officer before retiring honorably after 46 years of service. He was 62 years old. Uh, There was no mistaking that he was a very proud member of our nation's army. Uh, Half of their house, if you went there, was basically a museum. 
It was given to about 150 years of military memorabilia, including uniforms, all the way down to like his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Civil War era, all the way up to the present day, including his own uniform. And so the point being was that he was a very distinguished man. Uh, He was distinguished in life from your typical civilian on the street. And as in life, so also in death. He was distinguished. Upon his passing, men would just show up at my grandmother's home to confer honors that we didn't even know existed, right? I'd guess that the entirety of his service record was put down in a log or a book of remembrance of some kind so that he might be fully commended for all of his service, things that we didn't know about at last. So he was distinguished in life, he was distinguished also in death. Will it be different for you and me than it was for him? There's a theological saying that while we are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, such faith is never alone. Meaning that saving faith is a a living faith. It's a living faith. The faith that unites us to Jesus is a faith that enlists us to live distinctive lives for Jesus. The justified person is a new person who will be an increasingly righteous person, and markedly so. That's essential to realize because there are people who think that they can take on the grace of Jesus without putting off their sin and putting on righteousness. They want to wear the name of Christ. I am a Christian, but they don't want to put on His uniform. They don't want to be in His service. They assume that they can live like goats and then still be gathered, finally, with the sheep of Christ. What about you? Is that how you think? Do you think that you can live a God-wearying life, so to speak, and still get honors when Christ comes? Can we treasure the world's treasures? Can we treasure the world's riches, the world's profiteering, and then safely assume that we're a part of His treasured possession that He's going to make up in that day. In return for His love, can we depreciate serving Him and still be confident of standing at the right right hand of Jesus Christ forever? Friends, our text today teaches us there is an esteem for God right now in this life that will distinguish God's true people both in this life and then for all eternity. So let's come to it and give some time first to Israel's wearying words and God's distinguishing ones starting in chapter 2, verse 17. Again, if you're catching up with us, the burden of this word of God, we know it's Malachi, is to convince the people of God that God has loved them. Do you remember that? That's the burden of Malachi. To convince them that He's loved them. 
But as their priests, we saw this a week ago, had not guarded the knowledge of God, the people then had lost the knowledge of God. They had lost the truth about God and about themselves. And where that knowledge is lost, our hearts can begin to weary of God. And hearts that have wearied or tired of God will speak, tend to speak, God-wearying words. Where His glory is cheapened, the fear of speaking ill of God will be lessened. Restraint is cast off. Our sin or our ignorance begins to speak. They take the floor. The people become judge and jury. And God is the one then who is set on trial. Before we advance on that, let me just say this. Is that right there not the setup in so many professing hearts and churches today? Not inviting the Word of God to judge us. Not inviting the Word of God to change us. To confront our hearts and reform us according to the truth of Christ. But us standing in judgment over the Word. Us standing in judgment over the God of the Word putting God on trial. I hear what you're saying there, but I don't believe that. Haven't you known what's going on in our culture today? Can't possibly believe that. That can't be true. We put Him on trial. It's August, right? Yep. Tis the season for choosing churches. Uh, Perhaps some of you are feeling that right now. So if I can, let me help you out. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Then it's really simple, or at least it should be. The guiding principle in the selection process, when you're choosing churches, the guiding principle in the selection process should not be, for instance, where all your friends want to go. It should not be the style of worship It's not that it's unimportant, but it shouldn't be the deciding factor. It should not be the dynamism of the worship. It shouldn't even really be even where you're most comfortable. I don't know if you know this, but comfort can actually be the enemy of growth. And learn from Israel in the Old Testament, your tribes are not are not more vital, more valuable than God's truth. They're not. So you need to place a premium on churches that guard the good deposit of truth well. You need to place a premium on churches that observably love all the truth of the Word of God. And that will follow, like we saw a week ago, Levi's example. Levi's kind of ministry, teaching the truth, getting error out of the church, reforming souls, sharing Christ with them, seeing people turn from their iniquities. You should place a premium on churches that are doing that. And you need to place a premium on churches where to a potent degree then, Jesus is. 
You can see the stamp of his person in that particular people. Because that will get on you, that's where you want to be. And so what I say to you, friend, as a matter of care for your soul, I say to us, church, as a matter of commendation. I just want to tell you this morning, you really are becoming a people where Christ is palpable. It's beautiful. I thank God for it. That's where we get to go now. Let's come back to our textual direction. The first of Israel's wearying complaints is that justice, as they conceive of justice, is absent. It's nowhere to be found. We can get this, right? We scan the world as it is right now. (laughs) Scan the world as it's always been since Genesis chapter 3. We see that the awfulest people are often the most prosperous people. While God's people, if they aren't counted out of hand, the scum of the earth are often only marginally blessed in this world. And so we complain. (laughs) Uh, It's not fair. It doesn't seem to line up with what's right. God, you have some explaining to do. Never mind whether they'll listen when he does explain. The point is, God's not acting as they think he must act. They're the people of God. They're more righteous than their neighbors. You owe us earthly riches. Surely God cannot utilize crosses to the everlasting benefit of our souls. And certainly prosperity can't be a greased up slope in the inevitable judgment of wicked hearts. Go read Psalm 73. And so we cry, injustice. Into verse 17, where is the God of justice? And God speaks. Chapter 3, verse 1. What He says is, He's coming. The God of justice is coming. Christ is coming. Well, John the Baptist is coming. So he says, there's an allusion there to John the Baptist, my messenger. And then in the way that John the Baptist is going to prepare, the Lord himself is coming. He's going to enter into his temple, you see there in the passage, and he's going to apply his covenant, this new covenant. He is going to be your delight. So you're going to delight in Christ, this coming Christ, who's going to establish the divine justice in the world, right? Or perhaps you've forgotten. Israel, have you misplaced the promise? Genesis 3.15, anybody? Israel's strength and consolation, great Christmas song. Anything? Nothing? You've forgotten all of it? Have you no sight of the advent of the Lord, Israel? No sight of heaven's wisdom or biblical light or eternal horizons with its notion of justice. Don't you love when God appears on the page and begins to preach Christ? Good. Because there's more. They've asked for justice. But if you're not 
righteous. You'd best be careful what you ask for. Those who would put God on trial are here put on trial by God. And he has his own question. You want the God of justice? He's coming, but verse 2, who can endure the day of it? Who can stand and not fall when Christ, when Messiah, when Jesus appears? Who can stand? God can't be clearer. When Christ comes, He's coming as a fire. Is that our conception of Jesus? He's coming as a fire or a soap? It'll be as a refiner. It'll be as a purifier. A washer, a cleanser, a reformer of everything and everyone. Watch now that he finds in the temple. So you need to hear it. You can be in His temple and yet under His judgment. Just as Israel was wrongly self-assured of being on the safe side or the plus side of God's reckoning, Because, you know, we're not Persian, we're not pagan, we're not irreligious. So also, you and I can accumulate a kind of self-righteousness that stands no better chance of delivering us from the judgment of Christ than just outright sinfulness. So you're at church today. Judgment begins at the household of God, don't you know? You can be in the temple, but if you're not in the Lord Jesus Christ, all your saviors, your saviors, whatever those saviors may be, they will not survive the Savior. They will not survive Jesus. And this is why we mustn't let each other become a church that's content to just show up and then go home and show up and go home. But with texts like this ever in our minds, we become a church that are happy to hold one another accountable for the condition of our hearts and the construction of our lives. You say, my foundation is Jesus. Praise God. Next question. Because there's more Bible. Are you building on that foundation? And are the building supplies fireproof? This is where you get a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you want a New Testament reference point. So when Jesus comes to Israel here and eventually to you and me, just ask this question, do you and I really want to say, whew, That was close. Thank God for the foundation. Indeed. Or with that foundation, 
do we want to hear from God's own mouth, well done, good and faithful servants. Jesus came, as we see in verses 3 and 4, to gather up Israel and then by His distinct ministry to distinguish His Israel from the worldly Israel. Jesus came to create a priesthood of believers who have heaven in their hearts and obedience to the Word of God as our offering day in and day out. In other words, as Jesus walked through the world to the cross, God was drawing a line in the sand. He's drawing a line in history. Souls were being laid bare. The people are falling to one side or the other of that line. Rachel read it for us in the call to worship. You saw it there. Goat or sheep? Do we, do we understand this? Goat or sheep? Tear or wheat? Hearers only or doers also? Are we just temple goers or are we Bible lovers? There is a difference. Are we cross makers? We causing problems for Jesus? Or are we cross bearers? Remedying what we can. Are we merely religious? Or are we observably righteous? Are we self-righteous? Or are we righteous by a living faith in the crucified and risen Jesus? I want you to see what the God of justice sees in the temple among those who are trying Him as being unjust. What does He see? What does God see in the temple? Adulterers. Liars. Cheats. Oppressors. Sorcerers. Those who are trying to invent new ways to get to God. That's a sorcerer. So it's not just tables that need to be turned over when Jesus comes into the world. It's hearts. Friends, when Jesus came, you need to know that the righteous one came. So there's no mistaking the uniform. There's no mistaking the uniform. It may seem on the hoof that evil's advancing and the righteous are dying and God could care less. And so what's the point? Not so. God knows the truth. 
Christ will reveal the truth. The charade is going to be over and justice is going to be served. And the question then for each one of our hearts this morning is, will you endure it? You're going to be able to stand. Have you put on the Lord Jesus Christ? It seems the majority of this Israel had not. And yet, and yet, okay, so there's my hammer, I'm going to pull my hammer back, and go in another direction, right? There appears a beautiful twist in the text that bridges, sadly, to their next complaint. Look with me, if you will, at verses 6 and 7, astounding words, astounding words. It's at base of this legitimizing, authenticating work of Jesus Christ. What does it say? For I, the Lord, do not change. And you hear that and you're thinking, that's bad news. Based off of what he just said, that can't be good. It goes on. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. What? That doesn't seem right. You're not consumed. You deserve to be consumed, verse 7, because you've been sinning ever since you began. But, but, listen to this. He says in verse 7, If you return to me, I will return to you. That's crazy. So here's the deal. Doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. Truth is for life. You need to know it. They've charged God with changing. You've changed, God. You're not treating us as we want you to treat us. You say you're just. Well, you must have mutated. Because where's my fairy tale? And God patiently and rightly responds, it's not me that's changed. It's you. Whereas you all are mutinous rebels, sinners, I, on the other hand, am immutable. Doctrine matters. I'm immutable. I don't change. And that's the only reason you have not been consumed in judgment already. Dear ones, have we thought that the only reason we lived long enough to be saved is because God is not like us? Guy zooms around me on a two-lane, giving me all kinds of bad vibes on the way around, and almost everything in me wants to run up on him and ram him into Lake Hartwell. 
Luke was with me, he can attest to the truthfulness of that statement. I'm trying to study the Bible, because you know, sermons and whatnot. And the kids are being redundantly loud. They've gotten into this habit of like singing the same song, and not even really just the same song, but the same like line of the same song over and over and flipping over again. So it's redundant and it's loud. And it's not always righteous anger that flows from me towards them. I'm just being honest. Our moods mutate. They can swing, and they can swing like violently. But God, thank God, is not like us in that way. And because of this, Though in ourselves we deserve not a second longer out of hell, God's typically given us this precious thing that we call, ready for it, time to repent. Do you recall what Paul was the chief of sinners? The chief of sinners. Do you recall what Paul attributed his salvation to? 1 Timothy chapter 1. The perfect patience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Patience. How tenuous is our life? It's like a boulder dangling from the end of a little thread that's held entirely by a creator that has full knowledge of the weight of that boulder, by which I mean our sins. And every right then to hate that weight and let us drop into hell. Except, being in himself weighted with glory to save sinners. And having made a promise to do so. And existing immutably, unchangeably, He holds us up. He gives us time. Not long. But time enough. He proceeds with patience. He exudes Faithfulness. He overflows with love towards people who deserve none of it. Oh Israel, oh sinner, it's not a lack of justice that you're seeing. If He were just towards you as He has a right to be, you'd be gone. It's not a lack of justice that you see It's the steady heart of super abundant grace and divine mercy. How generous is God? Like the father of the prodigal and the self-righteous older brother, He not only waits for us to return to Him, but when we come, what's He do? He returns to us, runs to us. 
He not only forgives us of our sins, He also gives us Himself. Adulterer, would you return? Liar, would you return? The invitation stands. Cheat, would you return? Oppressor, unjust person, would you return? Destroyer of exclusivity, would you return to the one God by the gospel truth? Older brother, self-righteous, you think, man, I'm so good, I don't need Jesus. I'm going to make it to heaven on my own merit. Wrong. Self-righteousness is itself sinful because it says, I don't need what God has given to get me there. What about you? Will you return? Will you repent? If you do, God is saying here, I will return even to you. He'll not only embrace you, He'll load you up with all you could ever need, both for time and then all for eternity. He'll give you God. Return to me and I will return to you. Is that not most charitable? Is it not most charming? Oh, there are 10,000 Charms. But now see then that they stall out. And how they stall out. I once heard I had two options for addressing a congregation about gasp their giving. Option number one, you need to give. Usually followed up by more. Option two. See how much God has given you. Learn to trust that. Learn to trust this. If He gave His Son, will He spare you anything that you really need? Learn to trust that moving forward and just go from there. God's people, gripped by this love of God, will not characteristically rob God to accrue worldly profit. We won't withhold what His worth commands. His sufficiency for us should cause us to give sacrificially. Resourced by Him, our resources are to become cheerfully utilized for Him. The idea is that God is enough for us. If we had nothing else, if we had nothing else, or forfeited what all we had in His service, in the scales that matter most, we would not be the poorer for it. So here's the situation in verses 8 to 12. 
God invites Israel in view of His love to return to Him. And they stay the poorer. They stay in the pigsty of the prodigal. And they stall out. You say, you say return. Like, could you, could you give us the Hebrew on that? We don't get it. We're not sure what you mean. How or why should we do that? Aren't we here already? Aren't we with you already? Aren't we your people already? And if not, as you levy, what specific path might we take? Because for the life of us, we see no need. And that's all the problem. And they say all of that amid a yawn. And how hard the self-righteous heart can be to specific, practical repentance. God tells them, verse 8, you're robbing me. There it is. It's a practical way for them to repent. You're robbing me. To which they respond, how so? Because they don't know. They don't know. Man, I want to get after those priests in their day. They don't know. They have changed into a people without the slightest awareness of the love of God, the worth of God, the covenant of God, the ministry of God, or the purpose of God with them. Blind to their sin, unconcerned for their souls, they have defunded, not the police, but the priesthood. They've defunded the priesthood to fund, look at my kingdoms, my palaces, look what I have built. That is the American church. Like all the other nations, this Israel. They're indistinct as a people of God. And God now challenges them there. Whatever the reason, be it poverty, perhaps a desire to save a bit more, maybe simple overspending, maybe it's a settling of materialism in their souls. They've bowed to that particular idol. Maybe it's just plain ignorance of the responsibility they had to care for their souls and the souls of their brothers and sisters by meeting the needs of a ministry that God ordained to meet those needs. Whatever it was, this Israel had a keeping problem. Whereas it is more blessed to give than receive, their financial planning followed the logic of the curse and not the blessing. And so it was cursed. You see in the text, far from sacrificial, they were sinning in their giving or the lack thereof. They were not trusting the God of covenantal love. I love you. I've made promises to you. You're not meeting the end of your, the bargain on your side of things. And so he dares them. One of the few places in the Bible you'll hear this. Put me to the test. 
usually a bad thing. Not here. Test me. Bring what you ought. Fill up this house and see if from it I won't pour out heaven's resources until there's no more earthly need. See if I won't fulfill this covenant by giving a fruitfulness that cannot be spoiled. See if I won't bless your land and make it a distinct delight in the world so that people come and go and they say, seeing all the blessedness, surely God is in this place and surely God is for this people. They're mine. I love them and they love me. You see, here's the thing. When what we want is the world, And what the world says we ought to want and have. What do we do? We tend to skim on God. Thinking to enrich ourselves. When all we're really doing, all we're really doing is impoverishing our souls. See Jesus, don't, don't listen. Reading rainbow here, don't don't, don't take my word for it. Go to the New Testament. Sorry if that's really old. Some of you are so young, you don't know what reading rainbow is, which is a tragedy, by the way. It is. Okay, but just go take Jesus' word for it. Go to the Gospels. See what Jesus says about the poor widow. Did poverty keep her back from expressing her love of God? Financially? It did not. She gave everything she had because she had God. Go to Jesus' parable on the rich fool. Oh, my barns. Finally, see how much I have, how safe I am. I'll buy my way. And Jesus says, you fool. Tonight, your soul will be required of you. And what good is all that garbage? Weep as you read Jesus' story on the rich man and Lazarus. My guy's in hell. And he's like, oh, if I could just have Lazarus give me a little bit of, just a little drop of water. Nope. Sorry. That time has passed. That time has passed. You had your good things in the world and Lazarus his bad things. Now, you are where you are. And Lazarus, he's mine. He's with me. He has everything. Forever. This was a specific way that Israel needed to repent on their way back to the Lord. What about you and me? Same God. Same call. Albeit a new covenant. Which, honestly, if it does anything, just raises the desire that we should have to fund the ministry of the gospel.
whatever sacrifices that invites. We're not this Israel. We are the church of Christ. Our covenant or His covenant with us concerns, you know, not vines necessarily. It's not the soil, the fruit of the soil. What is it? It's new birth, forgiveness of sins, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's new creation people. It's glory forevermore. That's the new covenant. And God dares us then. See Christ. You're this new covenant people. See Jesus. If ever a person gave as they ought, it was Jesus. Don't you know His grace, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8? That though He was rich as God, yet for your sake He became what? Poor the cross. So that you, by His poverty, might become rich in God. He gave it all. And if you and I model our giving after His, God will, He's saying here as we move into the New Testament, God will pour out heaven's resources, enabling this church to bear a lot of fruit that ecclesiastically, locally, and globally cannot be spoiled. So just to be clear then, we're talking here about funding preaching. There I said it. We're talking about funding shepherding. Practical shepherding. Funding training. Discipleship training. We're funding this meeting. We're funding biblical ministry. Biblical ministry. Not just any old ministry. Biblical ministry. By the book. By the Word of God. We're funding gospel missions. We're funding Corey and Megan to go on campus at Clemson and preach the gospel. We're funding Dave and Stacy Hare and their work in Cameroon while they're doing Bible translation so that the people who had never had the Word of God in their life can have one, can have a Bible. We're talking about funding fellowship and hospitality and resourcing that equips the saints for the work of ministry. Alas then, where our treasure is, There our hearts will be also. So we come back to Malachi 3 and verses 13 to 15 just to note this Israel's response to all of this. And actually, it's just God's knowledge of their hearts expressed. They don't say a word. And so just hear it for yourself. This is what God knows of them. You say, it is, oh my, vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping His charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? We call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers. They're the ones prospering. They even put you to the test, God, and escape. Are those not wearying words at this point? These obviously have not taken to heart a single word that he has said. 
about Jesus, about His work, about His justice, His unchanging love, His invitation, sinners as they are, to return and be filled with heaven's stores because their response is, that's not good enough. It's not enough. It's not enough to get us to return. So they're in contract negotiations. And the payoff with God is not as much as the payout of the world to them. You make sense of their logic here? Their concern isn't at all the glory of God or the eternal good of souls. What is it? It's this, listen. If we can be evil and prosper, if we can be evil and escape judgment, why on earth would I be righteous? A sure sign of a new heart is that it'll serve God whatever it costs. Whereas these are only concerned with serving God for whatever they can get. And if they can't get by God what another has by sin, they're ready to go full prodigal. God, you're dead to me. It's vain to serve you. What profit is there in your charge? Give us our inheritance now. In this measly 80 years, if you're lucky. Righteousness does not pay what and when sin will. God doesn't give us what we want, which Satan is more than happy to oblige. Jesus, I'll give you <laughs> I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Get out of my face, Satan. It's not enough. I'm going to the cross. God is enough. Well, I for one am grateful. That's not where the passage ends. It doesn't end with Israel's wearying words. It ends, we'll be quick with it, with God's distinguishing words, distinguishing His own. Part verses 16 through 18, absolutely excellent. I love it so much. Out from among the wearying Israel, God's Israel becomes visible. There's the word. Now and forevermore. They become distinct. Those who feared God, it says, and esteemed His name, they banded together in His presence. They plopped a book on the table, and they're like, throw away the pencils, bring the pens. And they put ink to paper. They signed up to serve Him. They signed up to be distinctly His. They signed up to stand out 
as heirs of grace. And not just from the world, but from that Israel. They signed up to stand out from the culturally religious. There is an esteem for God now that will distinguish God's people in life and for eternity. Do you see what God says about these here? He says, In the day that I make up my treasured possession, they will be mine. I'll spare them. My unspared son, Jesus, will save them. And those who only thought they were mine, only to go out and love the world, they're going to see the risen King will distinguish again, once more, the righteous from the wicked, my servants from those who are just wearying posers. Friend, maybe you're wondering, how is it that I, the the immoral, I am that person. I am the liar. I am the cheat. I am this or that and the other. How is it that I can be invited so freely to the saving love of a just and holy God? The answer is only Jesus. It's that God Himself, in the greatest expression of His love, came into the world in Christ. It's that in divine love, He pursued you, even you, all the way to death on a cross where He bore our sins and was not spared. He was not spared the justice of God. Jesus paid the sinner's penalty so that if you would, you could be saved. If only... You'd repent and believe upon Him. You return to Him, He will return to you. Dear ones, just there though, it comes to us to ask, in distinction from this Israel, are we wearing Christ's uniform? Are we esteeming God? What does that look like? What does that look like on Malachi's terms? How about a love for God that obeys Him? Just takes Him at His word. How about a worship? Again, may not be the most dynamic thing you've ever experienced in your life, but how about a worship that's hearty and full of God? according to the truth of His Word. How about a zeal for His glory? You go out the door, (laughs) do you just go back into like regular life mode? Or does that mode change? Does it mutate? So you're like, how can I attach everything in my life to His glory, His fame, His esteem in the world? How about appropriating and appreciating A faithful ministry. How about positioning ourselves by our own personal holiness 
to be of the very best help to one another in staying faithful for many years. Oh, brothers, how about our wives testifying to the Christianity or to the Christ-likeness of our love for them? How about our children, parents, testifying to the Christianity of our parenting of them? How about checkbooks that testify that our treasure is in heaven, beloved? How about a willingness to serve that says, Jesus lives. Jesus lives. It's not in vain. He is worthy. And so, maybe, hearing all of that, so much of esteeming God may really just be embracing repentance. Because the Lord is coming. And the truth is going to come out. And blessed then will be the people in life and death and on who live in a way that on that day they get to hear from God's own mouth Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. (laughs) I'm going to set you over much. Come then and enter in to the joy of your master, the one you distinctly served all the days of your life. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you. We praise you for your word. Pray that you would work in us now. Just such a love for you. Such an esteeming of your name. Be glorified in this people through the preaching of your word. Do it now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. How about our wives testifying to the Christianity or to the Christ-likeness of our love for them? How about our children, parents, testifying to the Christianity of our parenting of them? How about checkbooks? that testify that our treasure is in heaven, beloved? How about a willingness to serve that says, Jesus lives. Jesus lives. It's not in vain. He is worthy. And so, maybe, hearing all of that, so much of esteeming God may really just be embracing repentance. Because the Lord is coming. And the truth is going to come out. And blessed then will be the people in life and death and on who live in a way that on that day they get to hear from God's own mouth, well done, good and faithful servant. 
you have been faithful over a little. <laughs> oh, I'm going to set you over much. Come then and enter in to the joy of your master, the one you distinctly served all the days of your life. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you. We praise you for your word. Pray that you would work in us now. Oh, just such a love for you. Such an esteeming of your name. Be glorified in this people through the preaching of your word. Do it now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.